the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As we move along in our study of Revelation, we find ourselves beginning a six-part series called The Seven Churches. Join us for Abounding Grace next. You know, you would be hard-pressed to find a ministry that has not approached this section of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches. It is a fascinating section of Scripture, and everyone has approached it a time or two. Well, we are no different. But you see, it's because it holds such relevant information. It is addressed to the seven churches in Asia Minor, but it is also addressed to you and I today. Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church begins our excursion now here in chapter 2 of Revelation, verses 1 through 11. Here's Pastor Gary in today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Well, we start looking today at the seven churches in Asia Minor. And this is our third lesson on the book of Revelation. So let me just review very quickly the first two lessons to refresh your memory. The first lesson was on the first three verses, which set out the basic principles by which the book of Revelation is to be interpreted. And there is a lot of misunderstanding about the book of Revelation and many, many false views, simply because people disregard the principles of interpretation set forth in those first three verses of chapter 1. Then two weeks ago, we looked at the rest of the chapter and focused particularly on the star of the book, who is, of course, the reigning and exalted Lord Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God and who is described in such vivid metaphorical language as we see in verses 11 through 20. Now, people usually say, that the book of Revelation is about the second coming of Christ, when as a matter of fact, there is very little in the book about the second coming of Christ. The theme of the book, you will see in verse 7, which we also looked at two weeks ago. And if you weren't here then, I would advise you to get the CD of that sermon from Ben. But it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, even so come, amen. People just automatically assume, without doing their homework, that that verse refers to the second coming of Christ, but it does not. It is comprised of two Old Testament texts. The first is in the sentence, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, which is from Isaiah. And it is a description of God's judgment on Egypt in the Old Testament. And it says, God 
is riding on a cloud to Egypt, and the hearts of the people of Egypt will melt. Well, he didn't really ride on a cloud. You know, you don't ride on clouds. But it is a very powerful image of God coming to Egypt to destroy it. A cloud in the Old Testament does not refer to those fluffy white things in the sky, but to that significant cloud in the Old Testament called the Shekinah glory. That great fiery pillar that led the children children of Israel out of the wilderness and also on occasion filled the Holy of Holies in the temple. That fiery cloud is a glory cloud. It is the visualization of the glory of God. So when the Bible says that God would ride a cloud to Egypt, it does not mean literally to ride a cloud. It means that God is going to display his power in Egypt in such a way that it will manifest his glory and the hearts of the people in Egypt will melt in fear. Also remember in verse 7, coming is in the present tense and in, the, and in Greek present tense denotes continuous action. So it actually says he is keeping on coming or he comes continuously with the clouds. That is, in the display of his glory. Therefore, it doesn't have reference to the second coming at the end of time primarily, but to all of the interventions of Christ into history by his providence and by his spirit that climaxes in the last physical coming of Christ at the end of the world. Behold, he keeps on coming in the clouds, And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him or crucified him. And all of the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And in the context from which this comes in the Old Testament in Zechariah 12, 10 through 14, it is referring to the tribes of Israel. And the word earth can be translated there as lands. So the point is, that the focus here is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to the tribes of Israel in Palestine in their destruction of Jerusalem and his continuous coming into history to judge his enemies and rescue his people. Now that's very important for understanding some of the things that you're going to see today. Because in the letters to the seven churches, Jesus refers to his coming over and over and over. Today, we begin with chapter 2. And in chapters 2 and 3, you have the addressees of the book of Revelation. The ones to whom this book was originally written by John the Apostle in the first century, prior to 70 AD and the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. There were seven literal churches in what now is Turkey. And notice in the first verse of chapter 1, it says that what is described in the book of Revelation will shortly take place in the life of those seven churches in Turkey in the first century. So, remember, 
before we ask ourselves, what does revelation mean to us? We have got to ask ourselves, what did it mean to those churches to whom it was written in the first century? That is the seven churches there in Asia Minor. Now, before we go any further, we need to root chapters two and three in the visual of Christ. So look at chapter one, verses 11 through 12, which says, write in the book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Then turn down to verse 20. It says, As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, as we come to chapter 2, we see what some people have done, is they have taken this chapter and have said, each of these churches represents a certain era in history. So they divide up history into seven sections based upon what is said about each one of these churches. And you really have got to use your imagination to do something like that. Uh, You have to have a very vivid imagination. And also, you have to disregard the fact that it was not written chronologically to people throughout history. It was written to the seven churches that literally existed in Turkey in Asia Minor. So let's look now at the first letter that was written to Ephesus again. Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which is Christ, says this. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, before we look at the assessment of this church by Christ, notice that he identifies himself at the beginning of each one of these letters with things that were said about him in the first chapter Verses 11 through 20. 
So it's important to go back and understand those verses. But just for a moment, let's think about the city of Ephesus, Ephesus which, where that church existed. This was a vast and important metropolitan area. The church there had a series of great pastors. The preachers included Paul, Aquila, Apollos, and even John the Apostle. They had some great preachers in the church of Ephesus. The city was quite large, and their biggest claim to fame was the temple to the goddess Diana. Diana was so popular and such an important part of the life of this city that most of the businesses and the industries there in some way were connected to the temple of Diana, like making little statues of Diana and, you know, plaques like you find at Berean Bookstore and those types of things, you know, mints for goddess Diana, you know, those kinds of things. So if anything would happen to the temple or the worship of Diana, there would be a major economic downturn on most of the industry and businesses in Ephesus. In fact, such a thing was threatened. And if you want to read about Ephesus, you'll find it in Acts 18, 19, and 20. And there's a story there about how the gospel was preached in Ephesus and the silversmith who made little images of Diana was very angry. Because Christ worship was affecting those businesses negatively that catered to Diana worship. And as a result, Demetrius, a prominent artisan, was instrumental in starting a riot in the city. And all kinds of harm took place, especially against the Christians. Until finally the magistrate had to calm the riot. And brought the Christians in for investigation. But the point is that this city was so committed to the temple of Diana. That they feared her worshipers would be converted to Christianity. Particularly the industrial type people who made things for the temple. And it would affect the entire economy. Now, all these letters, as I'm sure you noticed, are addressed to the angel of the church. Verse 1 of chapter 2, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Verse 8, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, Smyrna, and so on. Now, who is this angel? Each church had an angel. Well, remember the Greek word for angel is angelos. And it can be translated in many places, angel. And in the book of Revelation, there are a lot of angels. And there is one particular angel that stands out above the others, which we'll, we'll see later on. But also, it is not uncommon for the Greek word translated angel in some places to be translated messenger. It's, it's not uncommon at all. The word angelos in Greek means messenger as well as it means angel. And there are several places in the New Testament I could turn to to show you this. But let's go to the Old Testament book, Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. And there in the Greek Old Testament, it says this, which is a prophecy of John the Baptist. Behold, I'm going to send my angelos, my 
messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, that's obviously a prophecy concerning John the Baptist, who was not an angel, but he was a messenger of God. So the point is that the word for angel here in the context is better translated messenger because in each of these letters they are directed to an entire congregation and they are addressed to one messenger. But they are to be read to the entire congregation, which means that messenger must be a representative of the whole body, that is, a preaching elder. A messenger who is an elder, and therefore a representative of the whole church. In chapter 1, verse 3, you see a picture of the early church in worship. And it says, blessed is he, singular, the preacher in a worship service, who reads and those, plural, the congregation, who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Now, the resurrected reigning Christ identifies himself in each of these letters in a way that is pertinent to the needs of the church that he is addressing. And here to the churches of Ephesus, he identifies himself in verse 1 as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven candlesticks. Now, that's taken from the first chapter. And notice what he says in the 20th verse of the first chapter. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the messengers or the preachers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here Jesus is identifying himself to this church as one, the person who holds the messenger of the church in his hand. The one who holds the preaching, teaching elder, the messenger of the church in his hand and protects him and watches over him. He is also active among the lampstands. And the lampstands symbolize the various churches, which means... Christ, who is about to give a critique of the church of Ephesus. And he wants that church to know that it is not some criticism from an ivory tower somewhere off in the far reaches of the universe, but that Christ is present and active, walking among his candlesticks, his churches. So his knowledge of these congregations is intimate. And thorough, absolutely certain and absolutely correct. And he is ruling and walking among them. Which is an interesting statement. Because listen to this about Jehovah in Leviticus 26 verses 9, 11 and 12. So I will turn towards you and make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will confirm my covenant with you. Moreover, I will make my dwelling place among you. My soul will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. 
So here the Lord Jesus Christ is directly self-consciously putting himself in the place of God in reference to these seven churches. Just like God walked among his people in the Old Testament and dwelt among them, so Jesus Christ, the Son of God in human flesh, is now present among his churches, and he knows them through and through. Then he commends them. He says, you are doing some things right. Now, some of these seven churches don't receive any commendations. But then after his commendation of the church of Ephesus, he criticizes them. But not all the churches receive criticism. Because each of them had a unique place in history. But now he commends the church of Ephesus. And notice how he brags on them in verse 2. I know. I am fully acquainted with. Your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake, and have not grown weary. And then in verse 6, there's another compliment. Yet this you do have, that you hate the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, what is he complimenting them for? He's complimenting them in verse 2 for their good works. They sought to be faithful to the Lord. He complimented them for their toil. They were hardworking in their efforts for the Lord. They weren't just a, a bunch of slouches. They were persevering. He brings that up a couple of times in verse 3. They were long-suffering. They didn't have a fly-by-night attitude. They had constancy. And also, they couldn't endure all evil men, either evil because they taught false doctrine or because they lived in an ungodly way. They couldn't tolerate heresy. They couldn't tolerate men living in clear rebellion against the word of God. And as a result, church discipline, I'm sure, was practiced very intensely in this church. And they put to test those who called themselves apostles, who they found were not, but were false. You see, they knew the Bible well enough to check those who claimed to be Holy Spirit-inspired apostles like Paul and Peter, but which were not. So they had a very solid, extensive knowledge of theology and the Word of God, And of ethics. Verse 3. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. And have not grown weary. That is you have suffered for this. You had to pay a price for this kind of attitude. People have looked upon you as bigoted and narrow minded. Any of you ever been called that? Because of your emphasis on theological and ethical purity. And in so many words he is saying. I appreciate that. You have endured for my namesake. And you have not grown weary. And then in verse 6 he says. Yet you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Which I also hate. Now before we look at the Nicolaitans. I want you to see something here. 
You hate what I hate, Jesus is saying. And you don't hate what I hate would be, and if you don't hate what I hate, we've got a big problem. And I do hate the Nicolaitans, so I'm glad to see that you do also. You see, godly, holy hatred is such an important part of the Christian life. I mean, if you love something, you are going to hate anything that opposes or seeks to oppress or harm the person you love. If you love good, you're going to hate evil. If you love Christ, you're going to hate anything anti-Christ. Every good lover is a good hater. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 40 408- 8665607 that's 4088665607 our website where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us is reformedheritage.org and then of course you can write to us at PMB that stands for post mailbox number 402 1484 Pollard Road Los Gatos California the zip code is 95032 Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408-866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. Mm